welcome to everybody here today. Uh, we are, uh, this probably will be a little bit of an abbreviated class because we are a little late getting started, but I'm hoping that we can generate some discussion about the topic. So, well, what we're going to do today is um, kind of talk about sort of uh, a sexuality from a, a scientific uh, perspective, from a psychological perspective, and how that integrates with our spiritual faith life. All right, um, with that said, let's uh, open class in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we are so incredibly thankful for the uh, opportunities you give us to come together and worship and learn more about you and our will uh, and your will for us. Lord, we pray that you can um, give us the, uh, the gift of curiosity, give us the, uh, the, the gift of discernment, help us to seek out um, righteousness and seek out truth and seek out justice in the ways that you may, uh, that you're calling us to seek them, uh, rather than in the ways that we may want to seek them. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so um, a little bit of background for those of you who don't know me. Uh, every year I teach a class in human sexuality, um, and I've taught that for the last, well, I taught it once many times, many years ago, and now I've been teaching it every year for the last uh, two or three. And uh, in that course, um, you know, it's a graduate level course. Um, what I find is that there are very often kind of misunderstandings or misconceptions about some of the uh, more scientific or, or psychological aspects of uh, sexuality. And uh, so as part of this affirming series, uh, you know, the first few weeks we kind of talked about, you know, first of all, why is an affirming church important? Um, you know, how do we interpret various biblical passages uh, that that we've learned or been taught uh, are speaking to certain aspects of sexuality. And so um, today I wanted to kind of approach it from a different point of view, um, not in a, and it's a point of view that in my opinion doesn't discount or, uh, or is frankly different than the, the more uh, theological or biblical or scriptural aspects. It's just another way of looking at it. I think about it like the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the fable of the, the three blind men approaching an elephant. Y'all all know that? The three blind men and an elephant where they're approaching it from different aspects and one grabs the trunk, one grabs the leg, one grabs the tail, and they're describing this elephant in vastly different terms. And, but they're all describing the same animal. You know, I really see um, biology and psychology and spirituality as kind of that. It's describing the human experience in ways that if we don't, if we're, if we're too rigid in aligning ourselves with one or another, may feel like completely contradictory entities, but they're all describing the human experience. And I think that uh, sexuality is part of that. So human sexuality is, is personal, it is biological, it is spiritual. Um, every testimony from uh, every um, uh, gay or transgendered or uh, anyone who falls under the LGBTQ umbrella, every testimony I've ever heard from them talks about how deeply personal it is. Um, if you were here last weekend and heard Justin Lee speak, you know, he was 
incredibly desperate to um, conform his sexual identity to what he had been taught was was right and correct and it was just it was the definition of square peg in a round hole um, and so I look at that and I say there's something meaningful there that God wants me to learn right that 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 kind of dissonance now what that is you know does take a little bit uh, more thought and consideration and uh, and reflection and education um, but there is something to be learned there. And so uh, as, as we talk about sexuality as it relates to our spiritual life, um, I think it's also important to note that most religious um, histories incorporate or have incorporated some elements of sexuality. Uh, maybe not overtly, but at least somewhat uh, within its identity. So you look at a lot of the passages in Leviticus that talk about sexual purity, what it's really doing is they're talking about sexual purity uh, in relation to honoring God, but the reason why that's a thing is because the Jewish people were being called to differentiate themselves from the others. And so it wasn't that the sexual practices were inherently bad, it was that they were in that time and place a form of honoring a God other than Yahweh. Um, and so as we, uh, as we kind of look at how sexuality is described in Scripture, a lot of times it's not so much that the act or the identity itself is what is mostly problematic, it's really that uh, how that is being used, uh, how that is being used to honor God or how that is used to um, you know, perhaps engage in other kinds of religious practices. Um, what we also know now, you know, through modern, a lot of modern science, we've largely come to believe that, um, that there's a biological determination of sex and gender, um, and that that's scientific, scientifically, you know, embedded in, um, in the universe, you know, as reliable as gravity. Uh, that belief was further enhanced when we found, you know, genetic, genetic code that seemed to link male and female, XY for male and XX for female. The problem with that is in the years since, we found numerous exceptions to that. There are men, you know, men biologically in every sense of the word have the, the parts, the male parts, the male hormones, uh, identify as male, and yet have XX chromosomes. And then same thing with some women who uh, are women biologically by all, you know, by all observations, by hormones, by self-identity, and yet have XY chromosomes. You know, there, there are a number of documented cases like that. So that brings into question, well, what is the genetic link there? The, the real answer to that question is we don't have all the answers. <laughs> you know, we don't know all of what that means. Um, and so I think that to look at um, well, especially gender, but, but even, you know, biological sex as a known entity and like a very clear delineation, that's hard to do. Now, I, I don't mean to conflate like gender and sexuality. Those are not the same thing. Um, but just kind of as evidence that these are not clear-cut categories, even scientifically, um, I just wanted to, to put that out there. Now, sexuality is also psychological. I've been reading, um, uh, I actually thought I would have it finished by now, but haven't quite gotten around to finish it, uh, Sally Gary's book, Affirming, um, 
which if you don't know, Sally Gary um, is a woman that grew up in a, uh, a Church of Christ tradition, um, I think in Wichita Falls, a very loving family. You know, she you know, talks very highly about her family and how loving and how, um, but also how faithful they were, how, uh, you know, rigorous they were in their, uh, in their church life and in their uh, faith life. Um, and, you know, she, you know, she didn't have any kind of trauma. She didn't have any kind of, of you know, lack of love. Um, but she did have this really strong faith. And as she grew up, she began to wrestle with, you know, these feelings that she was having for women. And what would she, what did she do with that? And it's actually really impactful. Uh, one of the chapters that she talks about kind of how she felt about, um, you know, towards uh, boys when she was younger and how she, she liked boys, but she realized that there was a different kind of like for women and just kind of, I, I, I'm not doing that chapter justice, but if you read the book, it really shows that there is a strong psychological component um, that integrates with her emotional self, that integrates with her uh, self-identity that, that she wrestled with. And fundamentally, she doesn't say this, or at least not in what I've read so far, but the conclusion that I kind of draw in hearing her, reading her story, is um, that were it not kind of for the dominant culture around sexuality, there wouldn't have been any kind of question. There wouldn't have been any kind of discernment needed. It was just that, that clear to her. But because of the religious environment, because she grew up mostly in the 60s and 70s, um, and so because of kind of the cultural environment of Wichita, Texas at that time, uh, and then kind of where she moved forward from that, it just, that just wasn't a thing that was known and that was explored. And so, you know, that, that has, her story, I think Justin Lee's story, plenty of other testimonies really highlight how these people who, you know, otherwise, you know, otherwise would be straight if that was a, um, a way that they, um, if that was, if it was a choice, basically, they would have chosen that, you know, um, I think is a better way to put it. Now, I'm saying all of this as a uh, white, cisgendered, straight, middle-class American male. <laughs> and so I recognize that um, it's not me, it's not for me to tell their stories, and that's why I feel like it's important for me to learn and hear from those stories um, and how they've influenced how I see um, the, the mental and emotional aspects of that as well. Now, I also want to kind of, and th I'm just going to go over this last part, and then I want to open this up to some discussion. I have some questions, and, and uh, I'm hoping that this isn't just me standing up here talking the entire time. Uh, but the last thing I want to touch on is um, something that if you've had any kind of, you know, undergraduate or even high school level psychology course you're probably familiar with, and that is Piaget's theory of cognitive development. So what that theory says is that um, as we uh, grow, we, are, we learn how to think fundamentally. And one of the ways in which we learn how to grow is through the process of assimilation and accommodation. This has to do with the information that we draw in. So when we get a piece of new information, our first natural instinct, and I think it's, it, this is not a bad thing in my opinion for the most part, 
is to try to assimilate that information. What assimilation means is that we're taking this information and we're trying to categorize it, understand it within the framework that we have already established for knowledge. So when I meet a person, my, you know, if my understanding is, you know, a male person is this way, fits in this box, and a female person is this way and fits in that box, no matter what that box looks like, my first inclination is, first of all, when I meet a new person, to try to determine are they male or are they female, and second, to place them within that, their respective boxes. That's assimilation. Now, that's not always a bad thing. In fact, I think it's necessary for us to do that. Because the alternative then is accommodation. And that's where we change those boxes, where this information, you know, this doesn't neatly fit into box A or box B. And we either have to create a box C or we have to reevaluate the constructs and the categories of boxes A and B to begin with. So accommodation is, think about it like, Assimilation is I get a piece of paper and I put it in the correct file of a filing cabinet. Accommodation is I'm either creating a new file or I'm changing my filing structure, right? So that's assimilation and accommodation. Accommodation is hard. No matter who you are, no matter what the information is, when you're placed in the context of having to accommodate new information, that's always gonna be difficult. It's, you know, the metaphor that I always think of is I'm twisting my brain in a way, you know, I'm all of a sudden seeing what, uh, uh, oh, it reminds me kind of like of the TV show Stranger Things, which I only saw the first season of that, but what's the, the upside down? Is that it? It's like this world, but different, right? Am I right about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so it's the upside down. And so assimilation is, what is this monster here in front of me? This must have a taxonomy, you know, within the animal world that I need to know. Whereas accommodation is, oh, there's this other dimension that I haven't really understood, and it's the upside down, right? And I think a lot of the problems that we have, not just with understanding, you know, sexuality, but also with a lot of things is that our inclination is always to try to assimilate information, everybody's. And that goes with, uh, with religion especially, but also science, with any kind of endeavor that where we're presented with new information. And so if you're a person of faith who grew up in, in a you know, traditional, you might say, uh, religious environment, and you learned a certain way to think about sex, sexuality, about gender, about, um, uh, about partnership, about love. You learned specific lessons about that, um, which may not have been bad lessons necessarily. Um, sometimes it can be, but not always. And then you're faced with, oh, this is a person, or this is an idea, or this is a interpretation that doesn't fit with that, our first inclination is to be resistant. I think we heard that in Justin Lee's testimony. I've you know, read that in Sally Gary's books. Um, I've heard that from a lot of different people, um, both those who are within, you know, identify within the LGBT uh, community or are just our allies and have come to that uh, there is a period at which we're like, ah, how do I accommodate this? Or how do I assimilate this? I don't know how to assimilate 
this information and we wrestle with it. And sometimes we reject it for a while, but then we just keep being faced with the evidence, we keep being faced with more testimony, we keep being faced with the emotional selves. I'm, my, my primary job is I'm a psychotherapist, and so I've encountered a lot of people in psychotherapy who um, have greatly influenced how I see these topics. And so, um, so, so those are kind of the, the main high points from kind of a, a, a scientific or, or psychological point of view, mental health, emotional health point of view that I wanted to bring out there. Um, now I kind of want to open to the floor some, uh, some questions. So I'm curious to know from anyone in, in the audience today, how was the notion of sexuality first known to you? Um, you know, for some people it may have been feelings they had as a kid, for other people it may have been some kind of abuse, and I'm certainly not asking someone to talk about something that they're uncomfortable with or would not want to talk about, but in terms of just what sexuality is, um, which I define very broadly as the capacity for sexual feelings, part, part of the part of the personal identity related to sex, sexual tr attraction and sexual love. Um, how was that first known to you? Um, I guess I was in like third or fourth grade, and I I found myself uh, I had a crush on my dad's best friend. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> you know, I I just was really usually you hear that I had a crush on my best friend, but <laughs> no, it was my dad's best friend. I, I thought he was, I thought he was just like super cute. And I, uh -huh. just, I just really had a really real crush on him and that was when I did you know at the time that it was a crush I, I just knew I really liked him a whole lot mm -hmm. I, I didn't really know what it was so much uh, but I, I knew I just I got real excited when I was around him and whenever mm -hmm. he showed up at the house and stuff like that um, um, then um, when it but I, I didn't. Re I don't think I really knew anything about it being sexuality per se. Mm -hmm. You know, um, that that was still that that was something that was foreign to me because I didn't mm -hmm. understand about sex and things mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. But I I did know that there was something there as far as an attraction. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody else? Thanks, Tom. And my mom, I'm the oldest of five kids, so my mom was like pregnant most of my childhood. So I don't remember not knowing what sex was. Like my parents were very open about that, which is kind of weird, right? Because I feel like that's more common now than it was back then. So like I always knew what that was. But in the same way that they were open about that, there was no like, like this was, like I was, I'm a girl, I was gonna get married to a boy and I was gonna have kids. So much so that when I was little I thought, Oh no, I didn't want kids. Like I, my mom, I saw my mom pregnant all the time, and it did not seem fun, and it did not seem like <laughs> something that was great. And um, and so I thought I had to be a nun to not have kids. <laughs> and so for a long time, like there were like three years in my childhood that I was like, I'm going to be a nun. And Catholic teaching was strong. Man. I was like, Yep, my aunt Peg's a nun, and she has no kids, and that will work for me. And so yeah, I, I don't really remember not knowing what sex was though. I always did. But then at one point, 
you met somebody. Yeah, and, and I was like, okay, I'll kids with him. <laughs> <laughs> funny, funny how that works, right? Yeah, all right, I'll have kids with them. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. Good. Anybody else? So you could probably know exactly from probably five years old, sex is bad. That's all I was told. And um, then I was given the talk by my mom, probably about seven or eight years old. And then, but it was always with that umbrella, it's bad. And then uh, at church, it was, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. But never. Um, the alternative of like if you do you know what what is safe what is you know and I remember in high school thinking they're doing it anyways why are we just teaching them don't do it like and and you know still again being in the church mm -hmm. and thinking that's what the answer was was don't do it but I still had that thought in my head of but what if like they're not, no one knows what to do. No one knows, like it's the blind leading the blind. It's kids teaching each other what to do. And no adult is wanting to teach their kids. Right. And that's what I was seeing. So it was the complete polar opposite. Yeah, yeah. We could have a lot of conversations about the um, kind of the Christian purity culture of the 80s and 90s and kind of the maybe the good intent, some of the good intentions that were there and also a lot of the misguided steps that didn't quite execute those good intentions very well. Um, and sort of, and maybe even some of the, a lot of the damage that's been done, um, not just to LGBTQ individuals, but to, but about sex in general, you know, even uh, cisgendered straight people and how that kind of, I mean, gosh, I'm seeing the effects of a lot of that in a lot of the couples work that I, Couples uh, counseling is one of the primary things I do, and I see the effects of a lot of that, um, you know, Christian purity culture, which I, part of me, I, I feel like a lot of people tried to execute it well with good intentions, uh, but it was just very misguided in many ways. So, thank you. Um, I'll, so then the next question I'm wondering about is, what are your considerations about the intersection of sexuality and faith? I think when we talk about you know, scriptural sexuality, a lot of, a lot of us initially go to uh, Song of Songs, right? Uh, arguably the most sensual book in the Bible, but certainly not the only evidence of uh, sex and sexuality within the Bible. Um, but I think that as, you, as we look at as I mentioned, you know, religions throughout history have seen a spiritual aspect of sex. Um, you know, I actually remember reading when I was, gosh, I think I was an undergraduate, maybe graduate school. I remember reading a Christian author talking about sexuality and said that it that the sexual experience, you know, is is approaching kind of like a, a spiritual that that orgasm and the sexual experience is approaching kind of a spiritual godly experience more so than most activities that we can encounter and for some people i think that's true that's certainly not true for everybody i don't think but for a lot of people it's true that is true um 
But I'm curious to, to get your thoughts about where, if at all, do you see spirituality, uh, faith, and sexuality intersecting? You look like you have something you want to say, Warren. Yeah. I see that. I see a smile look on your face. And that smile either says, I have something, but I don't want to speak up. Or it's, I'm just waiting to hear what somebody else has to say. Yeah, that's <laughs> I think most of us have grown up in Christian faith traditions where that hasn't been allowed, right? Like an intersection of sexuality and faith isn't. Is not present within Christian tradition as much as it is in, you know, other other faith traditions like, say, like the Kama Sutra and things like that, where in other actual faith traditions mm-hmm. that is a part of practicing their faith. I don't think that that has been part of Christian tradition, especially in America. Yeah, or that that I've experienced. Not in an overt way. You're right, yeah. um, Thomas. What were you going to say? When. Christ is described as the, as the uh, groom, and the church is described as the bride. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, that unites the sexuality with the uh, spirituality, in a sense, because the two become one, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's basically all I was going to say. I think the other thing that that imagery emphasizes is the idea of marriage as covenant and as a form of grace that gets missed when we kind of separate those things from marriage and just make it be about, you know, when we separate and make it only about sex or only about gender that is, you know, has to be male and female or whatever. And, and I think that if, cause I think that's, it seems like as, at least as I talk to people who are kind of struggling with this, it's like, well, if you go back to Genesis, you know, it's, Male and female, he made them. It's Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. you know, all those kind of old arguments. And, but I think even if you look at that, you know, what he, what he initially says there is it's not good for man to be alone. That's, that's the impetus for even for marriage. And that as you go through then scripture, I think if you view scripture, if you view marriage as covenant and grace and an expression of that, I think it just sort of shifts some of those conversations. Um, and, and I think the, the bride in Christ picture is, is a good picture of that. <clears throat> then I was also thinking that I think part of my smile earlier was it's good for me to be on this side sometimes because I, I have to remind myself because like I do like I have a lot of thoughts but they're not formed yet because I'm sitting on this side hearing the question. And it's different when you have the question all week and you're thinking about it <laughs> and then you're ready for everybody else who's just hearing the question to, right. to have an idea. So I don't know where all my thoughts are, are combining yet but so I'll just not talk That's anymore fair. for now. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I, I'd like to do sure. Yeah. I, God made us sexual beings, mm-hmm. you know, and I think uh, as long as we're in that covenant relationship, that it's all part of a celebration of uh, of, of His creation, mm-hmm. uh, and and there's nothing. It's the traditional church or the Catholic church uh, where it started, you know. Um, tried to shame us into sex, put put shame uh, mm-hmm. upon us, and we need to reclaim that. 
mm -hmm. and reclaim uh, ourselves as free sexual beings uh, in Christ. And, and there's nothing to be shameful about that as mm -hmm. long as we're doing it within in the realm and in our celebration and in our freedom in Christ and in a covenant relationship with, with our partner and with God. Yeah. I think that that's a really good point. The struggle that I think a lot of us have, and that I, I know there's a whole other series that we could have about this particular topic, but the struggle is how do I discern that for myself and then also observe and respect that of other people? Because I can look at what I believe to be honoring of God in my sexuality and, and my sex, uh, sexual identity, but then I look at you or I look at someone else and I say, oh, well, they're doing it differently. So therefore that feels wrong, you know? And I mean, I, no matter who you are, you're gonna look at someone else who does something differently at times, maybe not all the time, but at times and think, okay, that looks wrong or that feels wrong. That doesn't feel right to me. And being able to, to set that aside, and this is one of the things that I really try to work on in my own personal life is not applying what, what draws me to God and what I believe is righteous and biblical and Christ-like and applying that to somebody else because, you know, at as Jesus's spirit has come into the world, we each have the opportunity to engage in a one-on-one -on -one personal relationship with God. And so who am I to, you know, judge what that looks like for another person? I mean, I have my opinions and I have my skepticisms at times, <laughs> you know, but fundamentally I have to be working within this framework that I don't know anyone else's personal relationship with God other than my own. And I, and I have to recognize the limitations that that brings, you know? Now, having said that, I do think that there is something to be said for the, uh, the sacredness of sex and sexuality. And so whenever I'm working with couples, um, you know, if, if, it's, if it's a couple that has a faith life, that, that has faith and spirituality and even religion as a part of their life, then I'll work with that. But if not, I don't necessarily, I don't necessarily impose that upon them. But what I can say is that sex is something that is sacred and that should be treated sacred. Now, exactly what that sacredness looks like on an individual basis, I don't feel I can say, but it's not something that should be trivialized. And I see the effects of, and the reason I say that is because I see the effects of that, you know, like I see individual or couples who, you know, maybe in their younger years were very promiscuous and that very often damages their, se the, the, their sex life with a, in a, within a committed relationship later on. Not always, but a lot of times it does. And a lot of times it's because the uh, sex and sexuality were somewhat trivialized at that time in their life and that kind of rewired how they thought about sex and then they entered into a committed relationship, a relationship where they wanted it to be sacred and that sacredness just wasn't there anymore, you know? Um, last question and then, and then we'll kind of wrap up. Uh, and this can relate to sex and sexuality or maybe another topic. What are some areas of your life where you have 
wanted and tried to assimilate the information and then struggled and eventually had to accommodate. Does that make sense? So you got some new information, maybe we're over time just continually getting new information and you really wanted to try to assimilate it, put that information into filing cabinets or filing folders or boxes that you already had prearranged, but then eventually had to accommodate it and kind of rethink how you were understanding that topic. Can you think of times in your life where you've had to do that? I'll uh, just tell a brief story. Um, I'm a chaplain. I'm a hospice chaplain now, but I was a hospital chaplain at Memorial Hermann in the Texas Medical Center. And, you know, I think at, at that time I was certainly at a place where um, I just, I knew the way of Jesus and, and I knew that an affirming stance was the way of Jesus, but I, I needed some information, like you say, to assimilate it. You know, or at least I felt I did. Um, and was just trying to get there from here. And I worked in surgical services. And so I um, had a patient and was going into the room. And I'll usually look and see what the, you know, procedure is going to be. And this time I didn't. And, and I, I saw the name. And I never thought about gender it never even occurred to me I, I would go in and I'd know what the gender of the person was and so I go in and visiting and there was just there was and the name of the person could have been male or female um, and I, I just I, I I didn't know and so I got to the point of prayer and I was in turmoil with with inside of me so I didn't I didn't know whether to pray for he or she. <laughs> and I, I was just, I was mortified. I came to this moment where I was praying for this person. And I just said, okay, Danny, you got you to gotta just go with your gut, you know, based on your impression, just some mysterious connection you have with this person. And so I, I prayed for her. Um, and I prayed for courage. I always pray for courage for my patients. And when I left the room, I looked, and the condition was uh, gender asphasia, uh, and the, the procedure was gender reassignment. And so this person born biologically a male was going through gender reassignment hmm. to conform with her identity and what she knew was right, which was a female. And so in that moment, like, there was no knowledge that needed to happen. You know, I just knew when I encountered this person that this person was a female, mm -hmm. you know. And yet here was the process she was going through. Mm -hmm. And so to me that just our experience, sometimes we're not gonna get there here. Right we have to experience and we have to know people and we have to live with people. We have to walk with people yeah. to see it and experience it. So yeah. that was quite a moment for me. Yeah. I mean, that, that's incredible because I mean, that kind of, to me demonstrates that there was almost kind of a, um, a divine 
intervention there on your part that uh, that that okay we we need to kind of re rework how we think about certain things yeah I think that fits with a lot of what Justin was talking about last week with the power of stories and experiences, empathetic experiences, and things like that. But the other thing that I was thinking about is that I think, too, it's, I think with a lot of these things that we talk about, like when you're talking about uh, accommodation, or right, isn't that the, yeah, yeah. Like I think so many things like that, it's almost like a muscle or something, and that the more that we mm -hmm. do it, mm -hmm. that we, we build up kind of ways of, of going about that, it becomes easier to do for other things. Right. And, and like, I remember, so that like, again, so, so much of this for me, goes back to college, but like, I remember going to a church one time because I grew up with like one way of doing church. It was like, this is the right way to do church. And, and it wasn't ever stated that everyone else was wrong if they didn't do it that way, but that was the unstated, like, you know, product of that, that if you didn't do it this exact way, it's wrong. So I remember sitting in a college class at this church that I was at and I really liked the church and the, the, the teacher came in, he's like, hey, we're thinking about starting a praise team, this like non-instrumental church, they were just going to have men and women on stage singing. And um, so we're thinking about starting a praise team, would any of y'all want to do it? And he's talking about how there's going to be women on stage, and I was like, well, I have to find a new church now, obviously, because <laughs> these, these sinners, here they are. I've heard um, so many stories about College Warren that now that Well, yeah, and I, I don't know, I haven't really thought about it until like, this series, about how so much of my stuff goes back there. Well, I have thought about it, because that, that really was a formative time. But I do think that like so many things that I just accepted without thought as wrong or sinful, uh, then when you start thinking about it, it then make, I feel like it becomes easier than when you get to the bigger things like sexuality or like what do I think about scripture or what it is or whatever it is. And even things like, so one of the examples I was thinking about was tattoos. Like I just kind of had this thought for a long time that well tattoos are sinful, Christians shouldn't get them. And then as I started re-examining things, I was like, oh well I kind of like them and maybe I should. So, <laughs> But that's even been within the last couple of years probably. Yeah. Um, and so, but I, I do feel like it, it becomes easier and then I think you kind of are able to discern when do I need to assimilate and when do I need to accommodate? Because you're right, like you have to have times where I'm just assimilating. Um, but the more that we do it, I think the better we're able to discern those opportunities. Yeah. yeah. They're probably wanting us to be done. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, the, uh, the whole process of assimilation is necessary for us to survive. We can't just always go through life creating new boxes, creating, I mean, you talk to my wife uh, as an accountant and a CPA, talk to her about making a budget. Like she's looked at, she's inherited some budgets that have a line item for literally everything. And, and she says, this is chaotic. You can't have a budget with a line item for balloons, you know, put balloons with streamers and other stuff into one category, you know? Um, I, I mean, you wanna, you wanna hear my wife rant. Ask her about how to construct a proper budget. She'll rant. Yeah. Yeah. Mine's open-ended. Okay. Because I'm still struggling with something. Um, so I'm an artist. I studied opera in college. And so I met so many people that didn't love the same way I did. And I grew up Southern Baptist, as I said. And so, you know, the first time it... it someone came out to me, I, I sat on, I, I said, you know, give me a minute, just give me some time, and let me pray about it. 
I didn't judge. I didn't say it's. A, I didn't say anything. I just said, just give me a minute. Let me let me go back to scripture and let me pray about it. And the only thing God said to me was, love that person. Mm-hmm. Didn't give me a, a how to guide. Just love them. And that was kind of how I I dealt with it until God said, you need to decide what you think about it. <laughs> You now need to decide. And it took me many, many years until I got to that place, and it really was just love them. And so now being at a place where, you know, I have a definitive, I'm not, I'm pretty sure we've been mis, you know, translating things and, you know, all of that. Now I'm a teacher, and I teach artists, and I teach creative types. I'm a choir teacher. And what I'm finding with this generation over the last 10 years is they're so eager eager to define who they are and their Mm -hmm. sexuality Mm -hmm. and it will change every week or every couple weeks and they're eager to accommodate yes and so it's like a constant like I'm this I'm that I'm this I'm that and it's a it's a constant changing door and as their teacher I can't guide them because legally I'm not allowed to say pretty much anything um i just say well thank you so much for for being open and honest with me i'm so i'm glad that you feel safe that you can say that and they i've always been that teacher that kids come out to you and i i know because i know so many people who are the ones that are and the ones that are going to change their mind Mm -hmm. and i don't know how to help those kids that are desperately trying to find an identity you know I don't know how to help them and it just keeps changing over and over and over again and nobody's guiding them and nobody's nobody's there to help them and I can't legally you know and it I, I, I'm sure that as you're describing that you're thinking of particular you know you have specific kids in mind that you're thinking of so I don't mean to kind of remark or comment on those kids in particular I've kind of come to, at least within my own life and in the kids that I've encountered, that if kids feel loved by anyone, that eventually, that that really our job after that is to more or less just kind of get out of their way in terms of figuring out who they are. And, you know, you'll have, they'll have an emo phase, they'll have a cowboy phase, they'll have a, you know, skater phase they'll have a preppy phase and eventually they'll find themselves and it might be a small amalgamation of all of that you know but they'll find themselves especially if they feel loved especially if they have people in their lives who know okay whether i'm you know emo emo cowboy skater preppy these people in my life are still going to love love me and I think the same is true for things like sexuality. It's like, okay, you know, kids are, nowadays that, that may be something that kids kind of claim without really knowing what they're claiming. And I kinda, I'm kind of okay with that as long as they know that there are people in their lives who love them and accept them and value them regardless of what that turns out to be. And, you know, over time they will kind of work those things out. And that's hard to kind of keep in mind in the moment where you see a kid who's struggling to form that kind of identity piece and you go, oh, you poor sweet thing. Um, 
you know, let, let me just hold you and, and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. And, and maybe I want to guide and direct, but I have found like even in cases where I maybe am allowed to guide and direct, it might not always be the best idea. Maybe just the best idea just to, to let them know, hey, you're loved, you're accepted, I love you no matter what. And that's really it. Yeah. All right, we gotta go. There are kids coming in. And so we got, that's usually a sign that we're, it's time for us to wrap up. So thank you guys. We'll see you next week. Bye.